Today's scripture reading is 2 Samuel 11, one through five. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Hannah. Peace be with you. All right, so it's a tradition in the African-American church that if you need to leave during the sermon time or time where uh, the word of God is being read, you will kind of put up one finger and then you just kind of exit like this, all right? <laughs> so I want to give you uh, permission to put up one finger and to exit if you have a small child with you that you do not want to hear uh, about this, this sermon. As we're going to be dealing with some, some sensitive stuff. If you haven't had the kind of sex talk with them, this is now the opportunity to put up that one finger <laughs> and uh, make your way out with them so we don't ruin uh, a talk that you may want to have with them later. <laughs> Though it is PG probably 10 or 11, all right? <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious Father, you are so good. You are so sweet to us. You're so kind to allow us to gather together this afternoon and just to hear your word, to be together as a family. I pray, Father God, that you would take the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and allow them to be acceptable to you. I pray, Father God, that you would allow me to speak with clarity, to have the necessary uh, conciseness, as well as the, the boldness to preach in a way that your people will receive your word as a double-edged sword. I pray, Lord, that we would leave this place saying, not, did not our hearts burn within us? And that you would press and prod in very specific ways on each of our hearts. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. There are two names that perhaps will forever be linked with David. The first is Goliath, and the second is Bathsheba. But both of these people represent uh, two very different types of people, and they both represent two different and distinct times in David's life. Goliath was big, boastful, brawny. Bathsheba was gentle, beautiful. Goliath was a tyrant, claiming and taking whatever he wanted. Bathsheba was an innocent wife, who was taken away from faithfulness with her husband by a greedy king. 
But what's interesting is early on in David's life, when he comes upon Goliath, David, his heart has such a, a great posture. He's humble. He loves the Lord. He's, he's faithful. He's a shepherd who um, just wants to take care of God's glory and God's people. But by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that David is no longer a shepherd who happens to be a king, but he is a king. He takes what he wants. We see this spiritual digression. We see that the mighty has fallen. And the truth is, that can happen to anyone in this room. Just because you are here this afternoon, and you're eager to be here, and you're loving Jesus, and you woke up excited to come to church, it does not mean that that's going to be the case two days from now, two weeks from now, two, two years from now. Just because right now Jesus is the center of your heart and your life and you're pursuing humility and community does not mean that that's going to be the entire outworking of your life. The way in which one finishes well is by intentionally guarding their heart. So we read in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And we see that David is going to fail to, to guard his heart. He's going to fail to, to protect his heart. This man who is a man after God's own heart is going to turn into a, another type of man. This man who once cared about God's sheep and putting God's people before him now has everyone doing whatever he wants in order to get what he wants. And we must be aware. We must guard our own heart knowing that Satan is lurking and that sin can easily entangle us. But particularly here, we see that David's going to struggle with sexual sin. And it's important as a church that we have honest conversations about uh, sex and sexuality and, and these things. Barner Group released in 2015 a, a survey and learned from that information that about 70% of men in the church consistently watch pornography, and about 40% of women. And that's not including things like um, fantasy novels and other things, but it just shows that even within the church, we, we have some, some work to do. I'm not pointing to the validity of their claims because that, it could be affected by a number of things, but what I am saying is it is evident that sexual sin hurts the church. And I've seen many faithful brothers, many faithful women who are hurt by sexual sins, whose life has been wrecked as a result of it. See, many pastors fall as a result of sexual sin. It's something that we have to talk about. It's something that we have to be aware of and that we as a church, we have to, to grow in. And so as we look at the life of David today, may we be aware, may we learn from these lessons. And there's three things we want to look at today. And the first thing I want us to see in this text is the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 11, 1, it says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. 
So the text says that this is an expectation that the king should be out at war. It's springtime. Wintertime, people generally did not fight wars. The weather was horrible. They would wait till the spring. It was kind of expected for the king of Israel and other kings then to go out with their armies to survey the land and to, to handle a business that they needed to handle. Well, David says, you know what? I'm going to stay behind this time. I'm going to allow my men to go forth. And we see that he is at home. Verse two says that it was evening time and David couldn't sleep. Perhaps he had some lasagna the night before, ate too much, acid reflex, (laughs) couldn't sleep. And the Bible says that he gets up and he decides to go for a walk around his roof. Now, David is the king. The king's house is probably higher than every other home. And he has a vantage point of the city from that high place in which he's able to probably see uh, not only his car- courtyard, but other people's courtyard. Let me bring it to the 21st century. David couldn't sleep. He gets up in the morning. He opens his laptop. He begins to check his email. Suddenly a thought comes to his mind about the person that he just saw in a movie, and he Googles to see whatever movies they're in. And that leads to one click. That leads to another click. And before you know it, David has fallen into sexual sin. Only David was not on the internet. The internet wasn't out back then. David was on his roof, and the Bible says that he saw a woman bathing, and the woman, the text says, is very beautiful. Now, if the Bible says that a woman is very beautiful, she was bad. She was beautiful. (laughs) And the Bible says that that David looks at this woman, and this, this is human nature to see beauty and to look at beauty, to glance at beauty. God has made his creation, his creation is not only good, his creation is beautiful. We should see beauty. We should acknowledge beauty. God has created us to be creatures that desire. He has given those, us those desires. Desires is not in itself a, a bad thing. God gave us desires, and we want to acknowledge them and celebrate them. But the problem comes when it becomes when our glance becomes a gaze. Problem becomes when we allow the the beauty of a creature to captivate our heart in such a way um, that we feel like we need to grab it or or use it. That's what happens here in the text. David's curiosity, he acknowledges this beauty. It's going to take him to a bad place. And that's what Satan wants to happen with you and with me. He wants us to get to a place where we no longer see God's creation as God's creation. He wants us to decreate. He wants us to objectify. He wants us to forget a person's story and to ignore the fact that they have a soul. That they're created in the image of God for more than our pleasure and sexual pleasure that God has a purpose for them and that one day they will stand before God and give account to how they live. But the power of pornography, the power of lust, is that it allows us to objectify people, to strip them of their story, to strip them of their soul, and to use them for our own personal gratification. That's why I love what the text says, and it says, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I love the fact that the person points out her father's name and her husband's name. 
It's as if he's saying she's taken, she's a person. That's what Satan likes to do. He likes us to objectify, to forget the humanness of people. That's why uh, Hitler and the Nazis were able to, to carry on and do such horrendous things to Jewish people. That's why the transatlantic uh, 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 slave uh, uh, passage was such so, so powerful and degrading. It's because we were able to strip people of their, of their humanness, to strip them of their soul, of their story, to, to convince people that they're less than a person and they're not human. That's what Satan seeks to do, to kill, to steal our identity, to destroy. But here we see in this text that this person comes to David and says she's a daughter and she's a wife. And that's what many people forget. They stand behind pixels on a computer screen or watch a, a movie or this person has brokenness in their life. Verse 4 says, And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. After sleeping with her, he sends her back home as if nothing happened. He's been gratified. Sends her home. Sends her back home to keep what happened as a secret. Sends her back home to live with shame and guilt alone. Sends her back home as if nothing ever happened after he has used her for his own gain. And then he hears these words from her, sent to her, I'm pregnant. So now David has to come up with a plan because he can't let other people know what has happened. I mean, this is King David. This is the, the number one iTunes bestseller in Israel. <laughs> this is the shepherd king who's not like Saul. He's not like the other kings that's come before him. He's the man after God's own heart. This is the one that they've celebrated, that they've made songs about. There's, there's no way this can be happening to him. So what does David say? He says, I know I'll, I'll get rid of the problem. And he calls her husband off the battlefield, Uriah, and he has a conversation with him. And the Bible says that he tries to care for Uriah. He asks about how he's doing and how he's, his man is doing. But he's called him back, hoping that Uriah would go home to sleep with his wife so that they can say that this is Uriah's child. Hopefully no one will notice that it looks like David. Plan doesn't work. Uriah, the Bible says, Verse 9, slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Uriah said, no, I'm not going home. Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in an open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He says, no, the ark, the presence of God is, is in a tent. My men, they are sacrificing for this kingdom. Who am I and why should I have a night of pleasure? David says, okay, I know how to get you. Pulls out the finest Kentucky bourbon he could find, and he gets him drunk. Once again, Uriah does not go home to sleep with his wife. And then he has plan C. Plan C, 
requires him to write a letter. And in the letter, the contents of the letter pretty much said, set up Joab and his men, put them on the front lines of this war, pull back resources so that they can be killed. And here's what's scary. His plan works. Joab sends a message to David to let him know what has happened, that these men have died. And then in verse 25, David told the messenger, say to this, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. How callous and cold David is. This man who once was his men's favorite king. This, this, this king who they sacrificed for and fought for. This, this king who was popular among them, who, who people who were broken and, 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 and down and out would come to now is using the best of his men for his own advantage. Oh, how the mighty has fallen. And oh, the deceitfulness of sin, how sin starts with a glance. It goes to a gaze. It ends with a grab. And it's a slow, slow, slow digression. It starts with, ah, oh, this is, I know this is wrong. I know God is not pleased, but hey, uh, uh, I'll stop. It goes to, yeah, I, I keep doing this, but as long as no one uh, 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 is hurting, no one, no one knows about it, it's okay. And then it becomes even more of a habit where now you, you're paying for Forward, you're, you're sneaking, you're covering up for it. And, and suddenly you've convinced yourself that nothing is wrong, that this is just your struggle. Everyone struggles. This is your struggle. And it's okay. Because after all, God created me this way. Or after all, my, my marriage is in a bad place, so I've got to get satisfaction for it somewhere. Or my job is stressful. Or my friends, they're all married and I'm not. If God wanted me to be sexually pure, he would have sent a spouse by now. That's what we see in James chapter 1, this pattern. Verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. But God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire, evil desire and entice. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. This is what happens to David. Like all of us, David was tempted. David had a desire. The desire turned to an evil desire. That evil desire essentially is lust. Lust is desire gone mad. And before you know it, it gives birth to sin. And before you know it, there's death. And maybe it's not a physical death. Maybe it's... Maybe it's a spiritual death. Maybe it's the fact that you're no longer evangelistic, concerned about the loss, that you're apathetic and just kind of going through the motion. You know, this Christianese, you say the right things, do the right things, but that desire to see God glorified, the desire that you once had is no longer there because the Holy Spirit is grieved. You're blind. We all can end up there. Most of us have been there before where our heart is turned away from wanting to live and please God because sin has sapped our energy and it's all about us. I mean, this is what's amazing about David. This is a shepherd king. He wasn't like the other kings, but now he is a king. He's just like the other kings. I mean, look at the verbs that's used here. David sent Joab out with the king's man. He's sending people now. Then David sent messengers to go get her. Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab. Verse 14, 
And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. David's calling the shots now. Slippery slope. So we see the deceitfulness of sin, but let us see the scandalous grace of God. It's interesting that while David is sending people to do his dirty work, God is sending someone to David to woo him back to himself. I'm so glad that God doesn't give up on us. I'm so glad that he sends people. He sends a word. He draws us back to himself through his love. Look at verse 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now, verse one, he says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, you would think, you would think that God, it would say that the Lord sent Nathan to David and Nathan came to David and said, David, because of your sin, you're about to die. And David fell flat dead. I mean, after all, Uzziah touched the ark of God, saved it from hitting the ground, and was struck dead. You would think that's what you expect, but that's not what we we get here. Rather, God sends a pastor to David. God sends a friend to David, and his friend is full of wisdom. This friend doesn't come at David like John the Baptist come at Herod. No, he says, no, I need to to come a different way because David doesn't see what he's done. And he thinks that this is a secret, but the Lord has revealed it to me. So what does Nathan do? David speaks to a parable. He says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you what has happened in your kingdom. A rich man had all the cattle he wants, everything he wants. A traveler comes to town. The rich man looks at all his sheep and his lamb and doesn't want to use his lamb. So what does he do? He took the lamb of a poor man. And let me tell you, that lamb of that poor man was like a daughter to him. And he took his one little lamb and he sacrificed it and gave it to the traveler to eat. was David's response? Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David knows that such a sin to take a poor man's lamb when it's all he has, that deserves death. What David can't see is that he is that man. Why? Because sin binds us. It blinds us. And then it grinds on us. So Jesus said, Got to do some introspection before you can take the log out of your own, uh, the, the, the splendor out of someone else's life. Take the log out of your own eye. Sin has a way of blinding us to, to reality. It has a way of making us more, be more hard on someone else's sin and call other people out for their sin while we are cuddling and, and petting our own. But God loves us too much to stay there. He woos us. He pursues us. He sent Nathan to David, and Nathan wisely turned the other uh, finger back to David where David is able to see himself. And here's the thing. God doesn't kill David. In fact, Nathan replies to David later on, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. That 
That's scandalous grace. That's scandalous grace. This man takes someone else's wife, has them killed to to hide his sin, and God does not kill him. I mean, according to the law, David should be dead, but God's grace intervened. And here's the thing. We will sin big. We sin big, but God's grace is bigger than our sin. It's the scandalous nature of the Christian faith. James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? He gives us more grace. James is writing uh, to the church, calls them adulterers. Says you're, you're cheating on the Lord. You're committing spiritual adultery. Early on in the text, he talks about why there are fights, why there are quarrels against, uh, amongst you. Is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. It's exactly with David. He desired to not have Bathsheba pregnant. He did not have that, so what did he do? He murdered. What's God's response to murder? What's God's response to our sin, to our filth? What's God's response? God's response is not death in Christ Jesus. God's response is more grace. It's kindness. It's undeserved favor. It's another chance. Someone dies. But it's not us. In this text, we see that part of the consequences of David's sin is that David's son is going to die. Bathsheba's son is going to die for David's sin. The gospel teaches us that where we should die because of our sin, God sent his son to die for us. Another son dies for our sin, and that's grace. And here's my message to you as you sit there and think about your own sexual sin. Perhaps this past week, perhaps last night, perhaps last month. And as you are trying to numb yourself of it and to punish yourself because of it, let me tell you, freedom from sexual sin does not come from you punishing yourself. And it doesn't come from you hiding your sin. Freedom from sexual sin and sexual struggles comes from you realizing God's love for you and his grace for you. That you are not condemned. That yes, your sin is a big deal, but his grace is a bigger deal. And that he has washed you and made you pure through the blood of Jesus. And because of Jesus, you can own your sin. That's what we see. The third thing here is, is the response that leads to life. Nathan comes in, he crushes David. I mean, he, boom! I just would have liked to be in a room to see David like, what? Who that? What? And Nathan was like, you that man. Talking about last year? Right? Look how David responds. Look how David, this is the gospel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. He 
didn't blame anybody else. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't say it was my wife's fault or wives. He didn't say it was the architecture's fault. You know, he did build this really big castle, right? I mean, I can't help but to look over it. And if it wasn't so tall, like, I wouldn't be able to see into people's bathroom. <laughs> like, what idiot did this, right? That's not what he does. No, he says, I'm the man. It's me. That's what the Lord is looking for. And that's what the gospel frees you to do. It allows us to take down our defense systems and say, Lord, it's me. I stand in need. It's my bad. It's my fault. It's my desires that I allow to lead to lust, which dragged me into sin. And that's the difference between David and Saul. When when Saul sins, Saul blames, shifts, he blames his other men. He minimizes his sin and says, okay, just forget about that. Just reaffirm me before the elders of Israel. He blames everyone else but himself. He wants to be restored to power. But when David sins, he owns his sin. And we have two beautiful songs, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, which is just absolutely humbling to read. If you hadn't read it, go home this week, meditate on it again, slowly read about how David confesses his sins to the Lord. There's no blame shifting. There's just this mix of him acknowledging God's love for him and acknowledging that he has sinned against God and God alone. And he begs God, create me a clean heart, O Lord. He knows that transformation does not happen by sure will. Transformation happens from the inside out. God has to transform him. There's a little chart in your bulletin that shows the difference between remorse and repentance. And true repentance is a gift from God. It comes through his spirit. True repentance is is focused on on God, not on other people. True repentance takes takes time. It's not eager for someone to just, just move on. It recognizes that trust has to be rebuilt over time. Go home and read that chart and then beg God, Lord, help me to own my sin and to repent, to turn from it, to have a change of mind and to stop making excuses that this is just my area or that everyone is doing it. And to recognize that when a Christian habitually and intentionally cuddles and walks in sin, that it impacts not God's love for that Christian, but it impacts that Christian's experience of, of, of the presence of God. It grieves the Holy Spirit. That connection, that intimacy is impacted and affected, and we go into a place of, of apathy, and eventually, if we're not careful, to a place of leaving the one we love and death. So let me just circle back around real quick and just give you that application that this text is calling us to see the seriousness of sin, specifically sexual sin, and to respond. I mean, David's life was forever impacted because of his sin. So as a result of David's sin, we see that his child is going to die. We see that there's going to be all kind of brokenness and, and rape. Um, in his 
in his family lineage. We see that his own wives are going to uh, sleep with his, his son in broad daylight before Israel. Sexual sin causes having. Some of you have been impacted by that, by other people's sexual sin. It's a part of your story and you have deep wounds by it. And some of you think that you, you have it under control and you're like, it'll never get out of control. Well, that's what everyone thinks. I don't think this was David's first time uh, experiencing lust and voyeurism. He probably just kind of put it to, to the side and he didn't deal with it. And then it grew and Satan waited until people trusted him. And then Satan uncovered that. He pulled the sheet out and it exposed David. And that's what Satan is doing. He, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He, 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 he makes you believe that you have it all under control and that you can manage it. And just at the right time, just when there's enough people that, that believe in you, that, that, that's, that's trusting in you, just as your marriage is, is beginning to get strong, he will pull that sheet out and expose you so that you will be filled with guilt, with shame, with fear, so that you would be exposed. And others will say, wasn't that person a Christian? See, everybody is just like that. That's why, that's why I don't do the whole church thing. We want to see the seriousness of sin. We want to avoid sexual sin. In order to avoid sexual sin, we have to be aware. We have to have self-awareness. We have to slow down and begin to take inventory and say, when am I most tempted and vulnerable? Why am I the most tempted and vulnerable during those times? What can I do to address this issue and to protect Myself. And you want to ask these questions, not when you're in the middle of temptation, but you want to ask yourself these questions when you're strong. To prepare for the times that you are weak. Mr. Miyagi, the Karate Kids pastor, he said it best. The best way to avoid a punch is not to be in a place where you are likely to get into a fight. Perhaps Paul said it better, make no provision of the flesh. So for some of us, that means that we, we need accountability. We need to give someone our, our phone and allow them to put measures on our phone that will, will not allow us to go to sites in a time of, of weakness. We need to, to make, to put, put things in place where we're not working late at night by ourselves and alone. But what all of us need to do is to invite other people into our lives to be Nathan. We all need a Nathan. You will not find sexual freedom by fighting it yourself. You're not strong enough. I'm telling you, I've walked with a lot of people. They think that they're strong enough and they come back to find out they're not strong enough. And this is God's gift to us is community. And we have to receive that community. Just like David had to receive that from Nathan, we have to receive that from other people. We have to see that community, Christian community and, and authentic community is not an option. It's not a luxury. It is a need. God calls us to be in each other's life over and over and over in the scriptures. Bear with one another. Be in each other's life. Gather with one another. Do not forsake the gathering together of believers. 
We need people to get up in our stuff and to ask us questions. And we need to trust our identity with God to not try to protect ourselves out of fear, shame, or guilt, but to believe the gospel. I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. The very thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Help me. I need you. We have to put on our running shoes and flee. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor theologian that fought against the Nazi regime, wrote this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of our flesh. And all at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. And in this moment, God is quite unreal to us, and Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God, but with a forgetfulness of God. And the lust thus aroused envelops the, the mind, and hate will in deepest darkness. It is here that everything in me rises up against the word of God. And therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation to our flesh, this one command. Flee. Christian, do you have your running shoes on? Are you avoiding these situations? Are you leaning into community, allowing people to walk with you, or are you self-deceived? Could you imagine David's life without Nathan? I mean, bad things happen to David after this. There's, there's consequences for his behavior, for sin, not because God hates him. No, actually, God loves him and God disciplines him as his child. But could you imagine David's life had Nathan not gave him the gift of authentic friendship and confronted him? Could you imagine David's life if Nathan knew that David was living in the sin but said, you know, I'm not perfect either. Who am I to confront David? Could you imagine David's life if, if Nathan did not risk his own life and, and, and risk himself by being vulnerable to David? David's story will read a lot different. We have these beautiful songs because Nathan came to David and confronted David by faith. And God is calling some of you. You know some of your friends have gone astray from the faith. They have wandered away from the Lord. You, you see that they when, they when you gather with them, they're not talking about Jesus. They've lost that passion about reaching the lost. They kind of slowly come into service every week, barely making it on time. And when they leave, it's as if they had never been here. And rather than to pursue them and to see what's going on in their life, we kind of passively let it continue. And then they walk away from the faith and we say, well, that's a shame. What happened? Get in their lives. Trust that God has called you to be their friend. Pursue them. Don't sin, hunt. Don't shame them, but pursue them. Ask them tough questions. Love them. And if they reveal something, give them Jesus. Don't take off your belt and spank them. God doesn't take off his belt and spank us. He gives more grace. Who's your Nathan?
The isolated Christian is a Christian that is on their way to death. Who's your Nathan? Who's sharpening you? Iron sharpens iron. When iron hits iron, sparks fly. Sometimes in a Christian life, sparks have to fly. Who is your Nathan? The prideful person say, I don't need a Nathan. And like David, they are self-deceived. And self-deception cuts you off from true joy. Self-deception will cut you off from true peace. And you won't be able to see it. Other people around you will see it. So how do we respond? We respond by soaking in Jesus, by soaking in the community he's given us, by soaking in his word. That's, That's how the Bible tells us to fight sin. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, Paul writes. Set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is. Think on these things, the things that are lovely, the things that are pure. Those who set their minds on the things of the flesh shall reap the flesh. Those who set their minds on the things of the spirit shall reap the spirit. Listen, God saved you to set you free. He saved you to heal you so that you can be a disciple making other disciples, passionately taking the gospel to your neighborhoods and to the nation. Satan wants you to secretly rot in bondage so that you'll never experience the healing power of Jesus, true deliverance that is found in Jesus and have joy to give it away to other people. And I'm not talking about triumphalism. I'm not saying you get the right person in your mind and you just read your Bible and you'll never struggle with sin. That is a lie from the pit of hell. You will still struggle. You will still probably fall. But your struggle will be met by God's grace. And over time, you will see more and more victory and experience the freedom that comes only in Jesus. And in and when you fall or fail, you don't beat yourself up or punish yourself, but you say there is now, therefore, no condemnation. You talk to your Nathan, you get on your knees, and you say, Lord, I'm moving forward. Turn and trust. I love Uriah in this text sacrificial he is. And my man is, my man is dope. He's just so sacrificial. Like, you know what, David, I'm not going to use my right sleep with my wife because of my men. But I wonder if Uriah would have done that had he known David had taken his wife. I wonder if Uriah would have gave his life had he known that David had taken his wife. But see, that's why the answer isn't David. That's why the answer isn't Uriah. That's why the answer is never a king, never a political figure, because all political figures, all kings, they all fall and they all have a limit. That's why the answer is Jesus, because Jesus, he gave up his right for me. He gave up his right for you to stay in heaven and he put on human flesh, and he came and he died for you, knowing your past, present, and future sins. You know that sin that you hope no one else finds out, that you will be embarrassed if you came in here on a Sunday morning and it was plastered on this screen? That sin, Christ died for you for it, and he willingly gave himself, knowing that you would struggle with that sin and fall. And he says, I love you so much, I'm still going to die in your place. That's love. We don't have to be afraid. 
Because the person who matters most loves us, knows the worst about us, accepts us, and is for us. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup. He says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, every week we gather together to take this meal. We touch this bread, we drink of this cup, and this reminds us that God's love is real for us, that Jesus literally came to the earth and literally died in our place. And that he defeated death by rising on the third day with all power. And here's the best news, that he's coming back again for us, for a bride without spot or wrinkle a bride that is covered in his righteousness that have been justified by faith and faith alone. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is barked by twine, whatever your conscience permit. Those of you in the front half of the room come to the front to take communion. Back half of the room, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. If you're not a Christian, we ask you not to partake in this meal, but my, my heart goes out to you and I pray that you would accept what you've just heard as truth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, that he died for you, and that forgiveness of sin is here. And that you also will hear as you eavesdrop into this conversation that Christians are imperfect, that we fall short of God's standard and glory, that we struggle with the same things that a non-Christian struggle, and sometimes we get it really bad. But what separates us from you or other people is not that we're perfect, but that we're purchased and that we're learning to be more faithful to our King. Come and receive his grace today. Let's pray.